Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Turn to with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through verse 36. That's what we're going to be looking at today, God's purpose of ministry. What is that purpose of ministry? That he gets the glory for his ministry. That he gets all the glory. We just sung it. Lord, be magnified. Be magnified. That's what it's all about. In fact, if you listen, if you've listened to the praise time this morning, you've heard the message already. Now, it's important as we approach pillar number five, bringing glory to God, that we understand the word glory. The word glory is an awesome word. It's the word doxa. D-O-X-A, transliterated. It has the predominant meaning in Scripture of recognition, of recognition. When someone is glorified, it's when their true nature, it's when their true worth has been revealed in such a clear way, everybody can see it. Now, you can't glorify someone you don't know. That's why we talk about the intimacy of a walk with Christ, moment by moment, Breath by breath, Lord, I need thee, not every hour, every breath. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you, you would. And as we experience him to the depths that he allows us to experience him, then we know him, and then we understand why all the glory needs to go to him because he's far beyond you and I. Since God's pattern for ministry, which we started with, which everything else, by the way, is cut from, is that he gives the gifts, the ministry, and the effect. And that we saw that in, in pillar number one from 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. And since God's power of ministry is that he empowers, he enables the gift, the ministry, the effect. He, he gives his divine enablement. He anoints what he has initiated. That's pillar number two. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. And since God's platform for ministry is that it's received from God and not achieved for God, but we just simply join him in what he's already doing. If Hoffmantown chooses not to join him, he's still going to do it. We just get the opportunity to join with him. We saw that in pillar number three in John chapter 11. And since God's priority in ministry is that we surrender to him, he doesn't want our fleshly energy to commit to him. He wants a, a yieldedness, a surrender to him, as we saw in Romans 15, 17 through 18 in pillar number four. Then it just stands to reason that in pillar number five, God's purpose in ministry is to receive the glory for all that he does. You see, when we're living through these pillars, these pillars are not something just to be for the intellect, to be informed. We actually become these pillars as we let Jesus be Jesus in us, and as we experience him working through us, then, and I hate to use the phrase because it's almost trite, but it's a no-brainer. <laughs> I mean, you get to that point, who wants to take the glory? We know what we can't do. We've already seen that, but now we've seen what he and he alone can do in and through us. His true worth, his true nature must be seen in all of ministry because it's not about us. It's all about him. And that's the exciting message of Christianity, is Christ living in us to do through us what we could never do. I can't. He never said I could. He can't. He always said he would. When we're allowing him to live his life through us, 
This is what I call living grace. Some people call it the exchange life. Some people call it the Christ life. I call it living grace. It's the same thing. It's just my way of expressing it. Once we allow him to live his life through us, then the ministry will absolutely flow out of our life. And the ministry that flows out of our life will always bring glory to him and not to us. People will see the mark. They'll see God's hand on what he does through us. One of the gentlemen, John, last night as we were talking that's here with Freeman, gave me a statement. I said he would hear it again. He's going to hear it right now. <laughs> 30 years ago, a chaplain of the Washington Redskins shared with him the, the Christian life. I loved it. Christ comes to live his life in us so that he might do his work through us. Now listen, without any help from us. There's your message right there. How many times do we jump in and say, God, I know you're old and you're on a back porch. You don't understand the 21st century. You need for me to help you out. No help from us. He does what only he can do in and through us. Now, this truth that all glory must go to him and not to us is not easy for our flesh to accept. Why? Because we want the recognition. You think about it. How many times in your life don't you love that, that recognition? Don't you love to take a little bit of that glory for yourself? Well, yes, some people walk up, well, the way I enjoyed the message. Oh, you, you did. We just love to take a little bit of that. It's like the two old boys that were climbing a mountain. For mountain climbers, one of them was professional. He was good, but here's his problem. He knew he was good. He couldn't take advice from anybody, arrogant, cocky. They climbed up several thousand feet, and they got to a ledge. And they were walking around the ledge. Well, the fellow that was a good climber, but not as great as this climber, just simply made a suggestion. He said, watch out. The rocks where you're about to step are loose. And in his arrogance and in his pride, he says, I know what I'm doing. Wouldn't listen to anybody. Well, there was a cloud between the fellow up here and the fellow down there. <laughs> and so he said, well, maybe he's alive. I mean, he's good. Maybe he's really good. So he took a, a rope out of his pack and he threw it down fished around a little bit with it, and all of a sudden something tugged on it. He said, he is a lot. He is the best. And he starts pulling him up. I mean, whoa, it's hard. I mean, for hours he's pulling him up, pulls him up through the clouds. And when he comes up through the clouds, he realizes this great climber, this arrogant, proudful climber, has broke every bone in his body except for his jaws, and he's holding on to the rope with his teeth. And he's thinking to himself, this is the best. This guy is the best. And he gets him up, and he's hanging him out like that, and the guy's hanging on by his teeth. He said, do you mean to tell me that you held on to that rope with your teeth all the way up here and not wanting to miss the opportunity <laughs> of receiving the recognition? He said, yes. Does that not sound like us? Now you know. We can laugh at that, but do we laugh at ourselves? How many times do we love to take the glory? Well, giving God the glory... But what he and he alone can do is what our text in Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36 is all about. Let me read it for you. You just read it silently along with me. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And then Paul adds that little phrase, to him be the what? The glory. How long? And then how does he close it? Amen. 
This is the greatest doxology you'll ever find anywhere in Scripture. It's, it follows the theology of 11 chapters. Chapters 1 through and 3, he talks about salvation, the theology, actually sin. He talks about the theology of sin, understanding what sin is and how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then chapter 4 and 5, he talks about the theology of salvation. And then chapter 6 through 8, he talks about the theology of sanctification, Jesus coming to live in us, to, to perfect us and to live his life through us. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he speaks of the theology of sovereignty, especially when it comes to the salvation of the Gentile and of the Jew. And then Paul says, after he's taught for 11 chapters about all of this, he comes to the point of saying, to him be the glory forever and ever. Many people have wondered why we teach the word here. Listen, doxology always follows theology. Doxology is praise. If you don't know theology, you have nothing to praise God for. But as you get into the word and you begin to understand the depths and the wisdom that is there, then it flows out of you. This is the, a grateful, adoring heart of Paul, and he's, he's overwhelmed. This is what this doxology is all about. The way we glorify God, the best way, the way we reflect his worth, the way we reflect his true nature, is not just in what we say, but it goes back to what we've been saying. It's the way we live. When people look at us and don't see us and they see Jesus, then he is recognized for who he is. His divine nature is seen. His divine power is witnessed. It's not us, it's him. But when we do things for him in the energy of our flesh, even if we call it good, then we're the ones being recognized, not him. Religion glorifies man. Christianity glorifies Christ and his true worth and his true nature. Paul, after showing the Ephesian believers who and whose they were in Christ, and after showing them how to be strengthened in the inner man, Oh, that's awesome. Verse 16 and 17 in the prayer of chapter 3. He closes that prayer in verse 21 by saying this. After all of that beautiful teaching, he says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And then he adds that little word we see a bunch of times today. Amen. Amen. You see, God shares his glory with no man. How many times have you, I know I have, tried to usurp the glory of God? We try to just get a little bit of the credit in, the, in there somewhere. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In Isaiah 48 and 11, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. Our text today shows us once again why it is that God and only God should receive all of the glory in our daily lives. I don't think there'll be any question in your mind. Hopefully it will not. We're going to look at the wonder of God as Paul just simply praises him after these 11 chapters of awesome theology in Romans. You see, it's again, the context in chapter 9, 10, and 11 is salvation, not just to the Gentile, but to the Jew. And he continues that on through chapter 12. And so it's a beautiful passage to look at. These three chapters, 19 and 11, talk about the marvelous love that God has for Israel. I've heard many people say that they're replacement theologians, and they say that, that the church began with Abraham, and they, they, they completely dismiss Israel. Well, I beg your pardon. God still has a plan for Israel. That's what 19 and 11 is all about. In fact, he addresses the Gentiles as wild olive branches. When you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, good morning, wild olive branch. I mean, we didn't have the covenants. We didn't have the promises, but Israel did. 
And it says in verse 17 of Romans 11, but if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. What was he talking about? The history of Israel. You see Abraham and you see the covenant God gave to him, the everlasting covenant, by, by the way, which we're included. And then it's passed on to Isaac and then not to Esau, but to Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you follow the history through the Old Testament and see how Israel turned their backs on God, a nation that he had made for himself, and yet God stayed with them. And he says, you think I can't bring them back into the tree of, of faith? Absolutely. Just like I can bring a Gentile in, I can bring the Jews back in. If we, being sinful Gentiles, can be gathered into the tree of faith, and certainly Israel, the broken off branch, can be brought back in. God is the initiator of salvation for both the Gentile and the Jew. Now, it's this mindset that we have. Salvation, awesome, isn't it? it we come into verse 33 through 36. The world's theological libraries attest to the restless intellect of believers of all ages who have tried to understand the mystery of salvation. Man has tried for centuries to probe the depths of the knowledge and the wisdom of God when it comes to salvation of the Gentile and of the Jew. And in our text, the Apostle Paul pops their intellectual bubble and he says the wisdom and the knowledge of God are absolutely unsearchable. So far from man's capability to understand, it isn't even funny. God loves all mankind, and that's the mystery. How could he love man? Spurgeon once was asked, and I like Spurgeon. When I get to heaven, I want to spend some time with him after the first few million years praising Jesus, but I want to, I want to meet him. I like Spurgeon. He, he reminds me of me a little bit. He's got a little bit of a rebel in him somewhere. And somebody, this lady walked up to him one day, and she said, I don't understand something. He said, what's that? I don't understand how God could hate Esau. <laughs> and I love Spurgeon's answer. Spurgeon said, that's never bothered me. <laughs> and she said, well, why not? He said, what's bothered me is how in the world could he love Jacob? Now, you didn't catch that, did you? That went by you so fast, made your head swim. What he's saying is, how does God love any of us? The psalmist had it, didn't he? He says, man, what is man that God is mindful of him? This is the mystery of salvation. You're talking about the heart of a God that we, we can't comprehend. It has to be revealed to us. The mystery of God and how he loves you and how he loves me is amazing. I love that song. Oh, how he loves you and me. I, I, I catch myself singing that all the time. That's the mystery. And he says, you think you're going to figure this out? Do you think you can probe the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God? Absolutely not. Now look, there are three reasons why we ought to give him the glory. And first of all is this, God's wisdom is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. Verse 33, oh, the depth, he says, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now that word depth there refers to the extreme depth of something. We're not talking about Elephant Butte Lake, <laughs> it's, well, it's not very deep. Let's, we're talking about something much deeper, something that goes way down. We lived in Reno, Nevada, and I know you say, wait, why would you live in Reno? Everybody gambles over there. Well, that just shows your ignorance because everybody don't, does not, they do not gamble over there. Matter of fact, yes, they've got the one-armed bandits in the grocery store. That doesn't mean everybody uses them. Matter of fact, the only time I've ever been on the gambling strip over there in Reno, we lived there almost three years was one day I made a wrong turn, and the second time was I just went out of curiosity. 
People don't just have to be. That's not like Las Vegas. It's not in your face all the time. It's a beautiful place. I live 25 miles from Squaw Valley. On the other side of the mountain that we looked at every day was Lake Tahoe. How many of you have been to Lake Tahoe? Just raise your hand. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Is that a pretty place or what? Now, Lake Tahoe is a deep lake. Uh, matter of fact, when we were over there last the summer before we came here, a friend of ours had a boat and took us out and had a place to He lived over there. We had some, a cookout. And we're riding along in the boat, and I said, this is great. July, it's hot. And I had my shorts on. I said, hey, can I just jump over? And he said, no, no. He said, a foot and a half or two foot down, the temperature changes so drastically. We've had a guy just either the same week or two weeks before, sometime in that time period, dove off of the boat and never came up. Because when he went down, the water was so cold, it, it did something to his, paralyze his lungs, and he just kept straight on down. For years, they thought that it didn't have a bottom. Of course, that's redneck thinking. You know it's got to have a bottom. I mean, it comes out the other side. But now we have sonar and that kind of thing, and they've discovered it's over 1,600 feet deep. And they have found bodies of people that have drowned that are perfectly preserved because it's so cold in that water when they find them. It's an incredible place. You think of depth. You think of that. You don't think of Elephant Butte. You think of Lake Tahoe. I mean, it just goes down and down and down and down. Oh, the depths, he says, of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is, I've just told you stuff that had to be revealed to me, and I still don't grasp all of it, and man's mind cannot probe the depths of God's knowledge and of God's wisdom. And it all has to do with salvation. Oh, he said, man, we'll never figure this out. It's a mystery. It's still a mystery of how he came to die for us to save us from the penalty of sin. And then, here's the mystery to me, how he comes to live in us? Are you kidding me? To save me from the power of sin? And then how one day he's coming for us to save us from the presence of sin? That's a mystery that can only be understood piece by piece by revelation. His revelation to us. Paul as a saved Jew can avouch for that. He said in Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight of the mystery of Christ. The only reason I have it, he said, it's not my degree at school. It's not because I'm smart. It's because the Spirit of God revealed it to me. It's beyond man's ability to comprehend. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets, holy apostles, and prophets in the Spirit. And then Paul, being one of those apostles who had enough of the revelation, now he has an assignment to take what's been revealed to him that he couldn't learn in a classroom that God has revealed to him and take it to the Gentile world. He says in chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that, he says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now just think with me for a second of the marvelous wisdom and knowledge of God to come up with the plan of salvation. Just think about that for a second. I, it blows you away. And all this wisdom and knowledge is wrapped up and centered in Christ. Christ is the centerpiece of every bit of it. It all focuses in Him. 
In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's unsearchable, and it's only discovered in Christ, and Christ has to reveal it to our hearts. Man in his arrogance in our day and time, I'm serious, they're there, has not only acted as if he's figured out the mind of God at salvation, but by his lifestyle thinks that he can handle it from that point on. That's the sad thing. God don't call us. We'll call you. We, we would rather boast and take the glory for ourselves. We saw last week in Jeremiah 9, 23, that man loves to boast in what he knows, and he loves to boast in what he can do. And that's exactly the thing that's the millstone around our neck. The mystery of salvation not only refers to our being birthed into the kingdom, as I said, but it refers to the whole lifestyle down here on earth. When you see salvation, don't just think of the event that got you into the family. Think about the whole process, the ministry, the life, the walk. It's all there. And he deserves all the glory when it comes to ministry. He's designed the church to function. Not as an organization, but as an organism. And we'll see that, by the way, next time in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. God's wisdom and knowledge and the way he designed the church to function, it blows us away. And there's not a man's mind anywhere that can understand the concept of God, the thinking of God. He has to reveal himself to us. Only he deserves to be recognized when it comes to ministry, not us. The wisdom and the knowledge of God in affecting our salvation and in causing the church to function, is unsearchable. Now, this is because his ways are untraceable. His ways are untraceable. This, this thing has just blown me away. I, not only can we not probe the depth of the wisdom and knowledge when it comes to the whole concept of salvation. What do you mean? Jesus coming to this earth, dying on a cross, and, and us, and then him coming to live in us, and then him doing his work, continuing on this earth through us as his vessels? We can't probe the depth of that. But not only can we not probe that depth, we cannot even begin to explore his ways in how he brought it all about. You see, the first thing he says is about the concept. The second thing he talks about is how he brings it about. He said, man, this, is, this blows us all away. Verse 33, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now watch, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now, Paul adds his judgments are unsearchable. The word for judgments there is krima. Krima means a decision that has been made. That little ma at the end of the word refers to the actual choices and decisions God made to bring this all about. Is that not awesome? When you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, we talked about it, passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and Israel turned away from God. Ten tribes split off of the 12, went to the north. Assyria conquered them, and then the two tribes to the south, Judah, they finally gave in to the, to the ways of their big sister, and Babylon took them into captivity, 605 B.C., and then we see up in Malachi, he withdrew the fire from the temple. He was so upset with them. And then for 400 years, there's a period of darkness. And all of a sudden in Matthew, he, he reveals himself and he speaks in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you go home and sit down and figure out how all that works. You try to explore the ways of God. The Jews would say, well, if he's coming, where is he? But he came in the fullness of time. God was in charge of it from A all the way to Z. And Paul said his ways are unfathomable. You can't figure them out. God's plan involving the decision he made to bring about salvation are unsearchable. His plan is unable to be explored. You see, 
which is, this is what unsearchable means. You can't explore it. I mean, you can get all the gear you want and try to get into it and understand it, but you can't do that. Now, he says unfathomable are his ways. The word for ways caught my attention. The word for ways refers to a road that is heavily traveled. Now, in their day, they only didn't have many roads. They had one, maybe two. And everybody traveled those two roads. I mean, it was a, a dangerous time. Had a lot of robbers that wouldn't. So they, they had two basic ways of travel. And so many people had traveled over the roads that you could put a blindfold on and get wherever you wanted to go because it was an easy road. It was a well-beaten path. But you see, what, what Paul says is God's ways, oh, man, are not well-beaten paths. That's why he didn't give us a map. If he gave us a map, how are we going to follow it? Because it's not a well-beaten path. Uh, we just went elk hunting this past week. And we were in areas that did not have well-beaten paths. I'm grateful for the fellow that was with me because he was our guide. And he always got us back to the car. There were a couple of times there I'm wondering, where in the world are we? By the way, the elk are healthy. They, they're, they're grazing well. And they're fine. <laughs> he gave us the guide. I was with Hertz uh, in rental car when, when I was a gold member or whatever they call it from all the years I traveled in conference work. And, and back, actually, when the first year I came here, we went to Galveston for a mega pastor's conference. I think because I'm 6'6 six, six or 6'7, six, that's why they let me go. I'm mega. And I don't know. Anyway, we got to Houston and we, we flew to the wrong airport. We're going to Galveston. We should have gone to the other one. And, and in the car was one of these little navigator things. It said Hertz Navigator. I said, hey, that's not. We got down to Galveston, and I didn't know where I was. And finally, I said, I'm going to use this thing. So I fooled with it forever on the side of the road. And I finally figured out how to put the address of where we were going. And a voice came on in the car. I love that. And it said, you are going the wrong way. Make a U-turn. <laughs> and I love it. It said, you know, you go 5.2 miles, and you take a right. I love it. And when you go 4. And then it says, you go 4.2, then you go 3.2, then you go 0.2, then you go 0.1. And then all of a sudden, in case you can't understand English, bells go off inside the car. It's like, turn now, turn now, turn now, turn now. <laughs> it took us right to the front. I'm so glad I didn't have a map. wouldn't have done me a bit of good. I am so glad we had to guide. Because you see, in the Christian life, his paths are not well-traveled. You don't know what he's doing in your life. That's why you have to stay as close to him as you possibly can because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55 in verse 8 tells us. See, folks, that's why we have to join him in what he's doing. I mean, by the time now that we're in pillar number 5, everybody ought to understand this. He's the only one who knows what's going on. He has the design. He knows the way. We don't. And to stress Paul's point, he brings two verses out of the Old Testament. One from Isaiah and one from Job, just to drive the point home like a giant exclamation point. In verse 34, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Hmm. Can you imagine the arrogance of anybody trying to tell God anything? I don't know, maybe it's in the book of hesitations when God said, Excuse me, Wayne, I, I'm really struggling with this. Would you give me your opinion? I don't know what to do. But how many times have we done that? You know why? Because we've been there and done that before. And we think he's going to do the same thing again. No, sir. No, sir. We have to get before him. It's absurd, isn't it, to try to do, live that way. And yet, how many times have we all done it? Sit around and try to solve what can only be revealed by God himself. Now, to illustrate what I'm saying, how much, let's just think about this for a second. Let's be real personal. How much time 
not really time, how much do we pray individually and collectively to seek God's wisdom? How much time? See, what we've done with prayer, prayer is a verbal expression of our trust in God. And prayer is not a ministry we add to all the other ministries. Prayer is the carpet that undergirds everything that we do. We should never have a finance committee meeting without bathing that thing in prayer and people getting on their face before God. We should never have an elders meeting without bathing that meeting in prayer and coming before God. We should never have a service without prayer. We should never have a connections class without a teacher and the people praying that God would do it. Listen, that is the key because prayer expresses how much we want to bring glory to God and we want to only do it His way. You think about what I'm saying. See, Paul, by referring to these Old Testament passages, is eliminating the arrogance of believers who think they can make ministry happen. Are you kidding me? How did you, could you make salvation happen? No. But he also eliminates the arrogance of believers who think God owes them something. And in verse 35, he says, Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Are you kidding he doesn't owe me anything. I didn't give him anything, so now he owes me back. Are you kidding me? He owes me nothing, but he has given me everything. You see, there's so much arrogance, but when Paul goes through that theology of 11 chapters and he sees it, God reveals it to his heart, he breaks out into this adoration, this doxology. He sees it. It overwhelms him. Ministry is all about God, not about us. God owes us nothing, but gave us everything. He alone is worthy of all glory. God's wisdom is unsearchable. Why? Because his ways are untraceable. Why? Because God's worth is unimaginable. For from him and through him, verse 36, and to him are how many things? All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What does Paul say here? Paul said he's the source of all things. You realize that? For from him. The word from is really not from. It's ek. Apo is from. It means out of his very being, everything comes from. He's the divine author. He's the divine originator of everything. He's the sustainer of all things. And through him. The word through is the little word thea. God is the means by which all things happen. But he's also the goal of all things. And to him, the word is the word is. It describes motion into something. Oh, listen to this. What God has originated, this has captured my mind. What God has originated is on a divine path right back to himself. You see, when we step in the middle and we short-circuit short that, we take the glory, then it doesn't get back to him. Listen, anything that comes from him is on a divine path. It's supposed to come right back to him. Went to Australia several years ago and we, we play golf in Perth. I'm not a very good golfer, but I love to play. One good shot, I'll go back. And they had kangaroos on the course. Now, that's a new thing. 158, I counted them. You know, a kangaroo is a funny-looking animal. It's to me like it's a, it's a, a rabbit that God said, oops. <laughs> I mean, it's just a funny-looking thing. But while we were in Australia, aside from learning a new way to speak English, on that particular trip, we were in London, South Africa, and Australia. And every one of them said they spoke the king's English. Are you kidding me? One of the things they have is a boomerang. You ever seen a boomerang? The neat thing. You take that thing and throw it. And it goes, but it's on a divine path. It's coming right back. Bam, it hits right here. That's the idea of what Paul is saying here. 
If you're going to give glory to God, you just remember something. He's the initiator. He's the one, one who sustains. And that glory has got to come full circle and come right back to himself. If what we call ministry does not reflect his awesome power and his character and his divine nature, the love that only he can manifest, if, this is, if, if it doesn't reflect that, then it's nothing more than flesh, and flesh is sin, and those works will burn at the judgment seat of Christ. The glory has got to come back to him. When we realize that his wisdom is unsearchable, that his ways are untraceable, that his worth is unimaginable, then this begins to evoke a response in our life. And this is what Paul does, which is the last part of verse 36. To him, oh, it's almost a, a resignation to that. To him, whoever, who would be so audacious to take it away from him? To him be the glory forever. And then he says, amen. Like the psalmist who came to the same point of adoration and surrender. In Psalm 86 and verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And you, he says, and I will glorify your name forever. Because once you see it, you can never walk away from it. It's got to go back to him. This is the cry of an adoring heart. The purpose of our lives as believers, the purpose of all of our ministry is to make sure he is divinely recognized for who he is in the midst of what is being done. Never is it to bring glory to us. As individual believers or as the Hoffmantown Church, listen folks, just because we're a large church and all that kind of stuff doesn't mean a thing. If the glory doesn't go to him, then it's for, it's for naught. Never to bring glory to us. The word amen is a great word. You know what that word means? I love that word. It means, may it always be so, and don't you dare think about changing it. Hey, I didn't write this. I love the way he signs it off. And then what does he do? He goes into chapter 12. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes on into, and then he says in verse 3, and let no man among you think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And then he starts talking about the body, for we're members one of another. And that's next week. See, flowing out of this great doxology comes a perception of the church you can't have any other way. That's the organism of Christ. The word amen, let it always be so. Well, in closing, on March the 23rd, 1743, I was born in 1943. Wow, 200 years. On March the 23rd, 1743, when the Messiah was first performed in London, the king was present in the great audience. It is reported that all who were, all were so deeply moved by the hallelujah chorus that with the impressive words, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, when they were sung, the whole audience, including the king, sprang to its feet and remained standing throughout the entire chorus. From that time to this, it has been always the custom to stand during the chorus whenever it was performed with spontaneous joy. The soul stands to salute him who comes in the name of the Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And to him we pledge allegiance. To God be the glory for great things he has done. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. 
That's jashow.org.